Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I can come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The hero's journey is a template in storytelling that has existed for as long as there has been stories. And the format of it is that you have a hero who sets off from his homeland on a quest or for a particular reason and goes through all sorts of different experiences and eventually returns home uh, a changed uh, character. And you'll see this template in all sorts of literature from Greek mythology, knights of the medieval period, Dickens, Tolkien, to stories of today as well. And this uh, passage where we've got to in Genesis and Jacob's story as the action focuses in on it where we've got to in chapter 28 really kind of follows a little bit of this pattern because what we see is Jacob setting off away from his homeland uh, for a particular reason. Now if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks you will know what that reason is. We have someone who has not done well, he's deceived his family, his brother now hates him, he's out to kill him and so Jacob has to go on a journey uh, heading towards distant relatives of his. And the action of this chapter happens on the way, on the journey out of the land of Canaan. And it says there in verse 10 that he sets off from Beersheba and goes to a place called Haran, which is in modern day Turkey. Now, this journey would have been one, is one that would be 550 miles, which is not an insignificant distance. It would be the equivalent of actually, incidentally, me going from here to where I was born up in Aberdeenshire. 
and Inverurie. Now, if your geography of Scotland is not that strong, as many English peoples isn't, another example would be here to the Italian-Swiss border, Mont Blanc. That is the distance, the equivalent of that Jacob travelled. Now, what we see in this passage is that God appears to him through this dream in a very significant way and speaks to him and reaffirms many of the promises that were over his life and his family's life as well. And it's significant that this happens at this moment as he is leaving this land of Canaan, which is so significant to the events of Genesis. We're going to read in a few weeks' time when we get to chapter 32 that as Jacob returns to the land of Canaan, God appears to him again. And that's the famous passage that Jacob wrestles with God and he's renamed Israel, which is an incredibly significant moment, not just in his life, but for the rest of the story of the Bible. So God appears to him here as Jacob is leaving Canaan and then will appear to him later on when he returns to Canaan as well. And I just want to underline that. I want to underline the significance of the land that we are talking about here. This area of geography, this Jerusalem, West Bank, Israel, it's significant, the land, in this context. But it's no surprise in a sense that this geographical area is even significant to the events of world history up until today. There is a significance to it. What we see here is that Jacob sleeps and in that moment God opens his eyes to a spiritual reality. He opens his eyes to the transcendent, the meeting place, a crossover from the earthly physical world to the heavenly reality of angels and God himself and this image of Jacob's ladder where with these angels ascending and descending on them it's a very striking image you might have come across it maybe in Sunday school when you were young maybe you've seen the image in um, works of famous works of art or obviously referred to in uh, the most famous song that Led Zeppelin also ever wrote Stairway to Heaven it's quite an arresting image this idea of the transcendent this idea of a gateway between the earth and the heavenly realm and even in this way it's described here it's in a sense of mystery it's 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 in the context of a dream and even though it seems perhaps quite fantastical to us this idea of a heavenly staircase I want to suggest that what it represents the transcendent the move beyond the physical world into something beyond Whoever we are, I don't think that experience is that unfamiliar to us. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that whatever you think about God and religion, the transcendent is unquestionably part of the human experience. Charles Taylor says that even in this secular age that we live in, that all that seems to matter to most people is the imminent, the the physical, what is tangibly present to them. 
Even in this type of age, we are haunted by the longing for the transcendent. We have moments, we have experiences, we have thoughts, we have wonderings that maybe this physical life is not all there is. And it often can come to us in a moment, a moment of real significance that opens us up, gives us a glimpse, just like Jacob has a glimpse into the transcendent in this story. But we have those types of glimpses as well, when we're sort of woken up to the reality of the transcendent, the reality of beyond our physical existence. Maybe you've had experiences like this, moments like this, Maybe for you it's when you held a newborn baby for the first time. Maybe it's when you watched a beautiful sunset or saw the the wonder of the natural world. You can have transcendent experiences in a church service like this. You can have transcendent experiences when you're high on drugs at a festival. You can have them when you watch a film and it just, it moves you, it speaks to you in a particular way. People have them when they share an unforgettable experience with a friend or lover. Maybe you've had a transcendent experience when you've said goodbye to someone for the very last time. Or maybe it's just when you're on your own (laughs) at night listening to music. We have moments that transport us beyond the physical. It feels like we get a glimpse of something more. There must be something more, a window into the spirit, spiritual realm that maybe we didn't consider in the day to day. And I think this experience is very common for people of all different religions or none. But what do we do with them? How do we make sense of them? What are they pointing us to? And that is one of the struggles of the age that we live in now. Many people have rejected organized religion or skeptical of the claims of Christianity. But therefore, they're left with no framework to understand these experiences. The Bible, whatever we might think of it, the Bible gives us language and pictures and stories to help us to make sense of these experiences. And what we come to understand is that when we have these moments, it's almost like they are breadcrumbs leading us to the truth that is beyond, that there is something beyond. And the Bible story is that there is something that's beyond, and that truth is a person. In the person of Jesus Christ. And in many ways, that's what this ladder represents, demonstrates as a picture of Jesus Christ being the way to the transcendent. And I want to unpack that idea more and more. But let's do a bit of study here because it's important we come to get to grips with uh, what the, the text is speaking to us about here. Let's consider this ladder in uh, more detail. It's helpful to understand this by referring back to something that I actually preached on last year. When we were in Genesis before, when we were in chapter 11, we talked about the famous story of the Tower of Babel. And if you read the text as we just have, if you remember that story, you might see some parallels, some similarities 
between these two passages. And I want to point them out to you because they are significant to understand what's going on here. In verse 12 of what we've written, this staircase, this ladder, it's not quite clear which, which is the best English word to use, but you get the idea. It reached to, top reached the heavens, it says. In Chapter 11, verse 4, when it's talking about the Tower of Babel, this tower, it uses a similar phrase. The top reached up to the heavens. We've just read how the angels were ascending and descending on this staircase. And the whole point of the Tower of Babel, if you remember, is that the people were trying to make a name for themselves. That's what they said. They were trying to earn their way up to and show how great they were and it was actually in many ways an, an affront to God they were making a name for the, they were trying to ascend that's what it was all about now you may also remember me talking about the most likely type of building that this tower was in the Tower of Babel. It was something called a ziggurat which is a tower but it's a sort of like temple tower and it was thought to be a, a meeting place of the, the, the earthly and the divine. So the, the, the structure had spiritual significance to it. And as I've said, it was, a, it was an affront to God, really. And that's why God uh, cast the people down and scattered them. Now, Jacob, in his experience of this ladder that he sees, he uses the same type of language to describe what it is. He calls the place Bethel. says that in verse 17 there. And he says, this is the house of God. Bethel, house of God. Talk about this temple type idea. And then he also says, this is the gate of heaven. Now, going back to Babel, the name Babel uh, is to do with um, confusion. It means that they're confused. And the, and because God confused our language and, and scattered them. But it says it's known that the people themselves called the place Bab Eli, which means gate of God. And that's the root that we get the name Babylon. And that's the connection. And that's what it means, the gate of God. So again, we see another parallel here. And finally, as I've already said, what Babel was all about was the people trying to make a name for themselves. And here in this passage, with this staircase, this ladder, God descends and he speaks to Jacob and says, actually, I'm going to make, essentially, I'm going to make a name out of you, your family, your descendants. I'm giving you my promise that I will multiply them and bless them and everything like that. So the connect, I want to show that connection here because when we see and read about this uh, Jacob's ladder it's not a random thing it's actually picking up on an idea that is a repeated motif through the Old Testament this idea of the gateway to God now it's clear from Jacob's response that he doesn't quite see the significance of what is going on here his response that we've just read is it's fairly lukewarm in a sense. He recognizes God being at work here and that's why he calls it Bethel. But it also says in verse 17, he's afraid, he's unsure. 
He consecrates this stone. He pours some oil out on it. But that's not quite the same as what he does later when he really meets with God in chapter 32, which is he builds an altar. And again, with the way he responds with his vow, it's, it's difficult to understand exactly what his motives are here, but you could say it's a, it sounds a little bit conditional. He's not completely convinced. He's talking about being committed. If you do this, then I will do this. I'll give you a tenth of all I have. But it's not exactly clear that he's responding in faith-filled worship towards God. It seems that his spirituality is still in some ways in process. Again, if we think of it in terms of the hero's journey, he's on the way out. He's beginning something, but he's not the changed person that he will be on the way back. And on the way back in chapter 32 that we'll go on to look at in a couple of weeks' time, when he does have this real encounter with God and wrestles with God, he comes away from that experience and says, I have seen the face of God. At this moment, it's like his spirituality is in process. He knows something of the spiritual, something of the truth about God, but he's not sure. He's not quite all in yet. Perhaps he's had this you know, transcendent experience, but doesn't really know what to do with it. Maybe that's similar to how you would describe your journey right now. Maybe your spirituality is in process. You've known enough through life that you think, oh God, or something must be there beyond just the physical. But how do we understand it? How could anyone get to a place like Jacob gets to later on where he says, I've seen the face of God. Well, Jacob gets this glimpse of this spirituality, this gateway. And what we're going to see is that this ladder points us to the fact that there is a way to the transcendent, that God has made a way for us to know him. And so in all these things, they point us to Jesus. And they point us to what the gospel, the good news of Jesus is all about. Because through his incarnation, God is the one who descended in the person of Jesus Christ. And through his saving work, he also enables us to ascend to God. Jesus Christ is what Jacob's Ladder is all about. Jesus Christ is the gateway to God. Now, that's what I want to take the rest of the time today to unpack with us. God, firstly, God descends to us. When we consider this story of Jacob's ladder, maybe a standout feature or something that take you by surprise is we have the the presence of angels. And in my uh, my preparation uh, of this message this week, I took some time to, I thought, you know, It'd be helpful to explain um, angels, what the Bible has to say about them. Uh, And then I thought, no, let's not bother with that. (laughs) Because although they might be interesting to consider, they're really not the most significant thing that is going on here. The most important thing that I want to draw our attention to here 
is that God reveals himself in personal terms to Jacob. Verse 14, he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. God is appealing to Jacob on a, in personal, personal terms. He said, I am the God of your fathers. By implication, I'm your God. Such condescension here. He's meeting Jacob on his terms. And I want to dwell on this for a moment because I think we lose sometimes how significant this is, how crazy this is that God would speak to anyone in a personal way. You see, we live in a culture that is such an uh, inflated sense of self. You know, you, you speak to someone in a city like ours and you tell them, you know, God loves you. And probably they're thinking, well, why, why wouldn't God love me? <laughs> I'm lovely. I'm a lovely person. It's God's job to love us. It, it almost like it deflects off people. And I think even as Christians, we can be, become so over-familiar with this idea that we could have a personal relationship with God. Let's remind, sometimes it's healthy to remind ourselves just how insignificant we are. Why would God want to spend any time or speak to us in a personal way at all? Because in the, in the scale of the universe, you are nothing. <laughs> How small you are. You know, if someone was to write a history of what happened in this country this year, let me break it to you. You're not getting mentioned. <laughs> You know, you, you could, even if the focus was on people that have your job role across the country, you're probably not going to be mentioned. There's other people that are going to be more significant than you. You know, if someone was to write a book about this city or the part of the city that you live in, or perhaps even the street that you live on, you're probably not going to get much more than a few lines. <laughs> You'd probably just be in the index. Other people that lived on this street. You know, when you're dead... Your great-grandchildren, they're not going to know anything about you. I mean, do you know anything about your great-grandparents? We don't bother to find that stuff out. We're not even that real, really interested. Unless there is a BBC camera crew following someone around, no one is bothering to look up who their ancestors really were, unless they have too much time on their hands. We, we're not really interested. And yet, God is interested. God descends. God seems to be interested in stupid, foolish, insignificant people like Jacob. Wow. God speaks to Jacob in a personal way. And what does he say to him? He says, I'm with you. I won't forsake you. I won't leave you. Who does that remind us of? Jesus. God stepped down into human history. 
He lived a perfect life as a man on this earth. He died on the cross for sin. He rose again on the third day and then he said to his disciples, Behold, I'm with you. I'll not forsake you. I will not leave you. You and I, we are nobodies. But the wonder of the gospel is that God has descended so that we can know him. He's come in a way that we can understand. You know how different God is to us? And yet he's come, he's descended as a human being so that we can understand, we can have a personal relationship with him. God descends. That's what this passage is about. But also... We see that this ladder goes two ways. There's a, the descending and an ascending as well. And it's pointing us to the fact that through the gospel, it's not just that God comes down to live on earth, but he wants to lift us up as well. He wants us to draw us close to him. You see, God descends to us, he comes proximate to us, but how do, we, how do we know him? How do we walk through this gateway to actually step into this spiritual reality of eternity, to actually know God? How do we get there? You see, all the way through the Old Testament, as I've said, where it's Babel, where it's this Jacob's Ladder incident, other places in the Old Testament, we have this idea that there is a gateway to God. There is a way to go through to where God is. And at many different times, God speaks to different people and interacts with different people and does certain miracles. But it's not quite clear. How, how do we have this relationship with God? And even on the Old Testament, their idea, the way it's presented of what happens when we die, it's not that clear. How do we, how do we get to God? How do we walk through this gateway to know him, to actually know God? The Old Testament is not that clear. And that takes us to the New Testament. And that takes us to Jesus Christ. John 10 verse 9. Jesus appears on the scene. And what does he say? I am the gate those who come in through me will be saved. He's the one that we've been waiting for. The transcendent experiences have given, given us this inclination that there is something beyond, but how do we get there? How do we get to heaven? How do we get to God? How do we get saved? How do we get free from the brokenness of this life? Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. You see, even though God descended and spoke to Jacob, it wasn't enough. Even though Jesus has been incarnate on the earth, it's not enough. No, actually, we don't just need God to come and be near to us. We need a Savior. We need a Savior, not just to descend to earth, but to descend to the depth of our sin, to take it on, to die for us, to purchase our forgiveness. And that's the cross of Christ. He is the gate. He is the way. He is the gateway to God. He has made it possible. He has died for sin. 
And notice how he describes himself. I am the gate. He doesn't say, I am a gate. He is the only way. Let me underline that. If we think, if you think you can get to God through your own efforts, through your own spirituality, through your own morality, through your own sense of being good enough, then you will not. That's what Babel was about. The people tried to earn their way up to God and God said, no, he cast them down again. Jesus says, I am the gate. He is the only way to God. So if it's not already abundantly clear in that, let me lay it out very clearly. The atheist is wrong. The agnostic is wrong. The millions of people that are hoping to get to God through the religion of Islam are wrong. The Buddhists are wrong, the Hindus are wrong, the Sikhs are wrong, the Jews have not grasped this either. Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the one gateway to God, the one way to heaven, the one saviour from hell. His name is Jesus Christ. Acts 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the question is, do you know him? Is your faith fully in him? Have you trusted your life to him? You see me saying this in a pluralistic society that we live in, perhaps it sounds harsh, but... You need to be clear on this because Jesus has come into the world, God incarnate, and said, I am the gate. Anyone who comes through me will be saved. He doesn't leave us in confusion. He doesn't leave us in ambiguity. He makes it clear. And it is grace. It is sheer grace that we even to know this. If we are just left wandering through life, stumbling from one experience to another, wondering about whether it is life beyond the grave, whether we are made for eternity or not, we've only got our experiences. God has not left us like that. He has come. He has descended. Jacob gets a window into fact that there is a gateway to God. And we see it clearly in Christ. He doesn't want us to have any doubt. And if you're listening to this now, this is the gospel truth that you need to put the whole weight of your life on. That Jesus is the gate. He is the only one who's died for your sin. He is the only one who has come from God and can take you to God and to be with him for eternity. It's Christ and Christ alone. Friends, we are insignificant, sinful people. History will not remember us, but Jesus Christ has come to save us, to die for us, to bring us into eternity with him. I am the gate, says Jesus. Those who come in through me will be saved. Do you know him? 
Have you come to him? It's a step of faith. Do not rely on your own efforts to get to God. Do not rely on your parents' faith. Do not rely on the fact that you're here in church. Do not rely on the fact that you've had spiritual experiences in the past. Do not rely on your understanding of certain doctrines. Rely on Christ and him alone. He is the gateway to God. He's our way in and he invites us to come to him afresh, to come to him today, to put our faith in him and embrace him as our saviour and our gateway to God. Jesus, we so thank you that you've come. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, for those who have been wandering in confusion, Lord, I pray, speak to them right now that you are real and true and you're beckoning them to come to you today. Give them faith to believe and put their their weight of their life on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.